Hi, I'm Eddie Lepp, and this is my dope history. The history of cannabis is filled with people who will say that they were guided by the plant. Eddie Lepp is one of those people. Eddie found many truths in the cannabis plant, and one of them was its medicinal potential. A series of illnesses amongst the people closest to his heart clarified the plant's potential when cannabis improved the quality of life for these people. Eddie Lepp was a spiritual person, and during one of these health scares, he made a deal with God that he would dedicate his life to spreading access and raising awareness. Unselfishly, Eddie accepted the risks of acting and speaking publicly in a time when few others were willing to do the same. Unfortunately, he also paid dearly for his activism, with nearly 10 years behind prison bars. Before all of that, Eddie was focused on caring for and creating medicine for his loved ones. This blossomed into providing medicine for a few more people, and then the story took off from there. Dope History is proud to share his story. Well, it started off just wanting to see people happier and healthier. And, you know, my dad got sick and went through a long period of time where he was getting operations every month or two. And then he ended up being okay for about a year before he actually passed away. And during that year, we got him to smoke a bodacious amount of cannabis. And at the end of that year, I spoke to his doctor. And of course, this was back before, you know, we made any issue about medical cannabis or, or anything, you know. But I'll never forget his doctor, his surgeon walked up at my dad's services and he put his arm around my shoulder. And he said, Eddie, he says, I don't know what you guys did, but whatever got your dad to start eating again added at least a couple, three months to his life. I think I had suspected at some level the, the medicinal benefits from self-medicating myself and trying to deal with, you know, issues that, that had helped me. But that was the first time it really kind of slapped me in the face as to how much it could really do for somebody that was sick and ill. When he got sick and he couldn't eat, I knew that cannabis was very, very good at giving people an appetite. And so I convinced him to start smoking it, you know, He'd come through, we'd be smoking a joint, he'd take a puff and laugh at us, you know, I mean, he was never serious about it. But then when he got ill, I, I did get him to, to start smoking it seriously. And as I said earlier, you know, after it was all said and done, his doctor told me that we added at least two or three months to his life by getting him beat. And at that time, I, I really started understanding the medicinal value of this. And then, of course, years later, I went through all of the things I went through with Linda Sentai. And, you know, I, I've told this story many times before, and I, I suppose it bears repeating, but Linda had come home and told us that she had what they suspected was cancer of the thyroid. And they had already cut her throat from ear to ear once and taken out half the thyroid. 
told us that they thought they were confident that they'd got everything and this and that. And the next thing you know, they uh, come back and tell us that they don't think they got it all, that they got to go back in and cut her open again and uh, remove the other side of the thyroid. And his Linda Sentai fought her battle against cancer. I was setting up in the garden one day and I was smoking a joint. I was under this ancient pine tree and I was sitting there and I talked to God or the creator or whatever you want to call it uh, much the same as I talk to people and I I just told him I says you know I'm not asking for a miracle I'm not asking you to come down here and touch her on the forehead and make this all go away but I said at the same time if you will you know allow her to realize how precious life is and how valuable she is and, and give her the courage and strength to fight for every minute. I'll dedicate the rest of my life to the sacred plant and to spreading the word of it. And I got another 10, 11 years with London before she finally passed away from us. And, uh, you know, I remember telling Dave Hall one day, the prosecuting attorney in my federal case that, you know, there were a lot of things that they could do to me that that certainly, you know, worried me and bothered me, but that they didn't scare me half as much as breaking my word to God did. And that's kind of how I feel about it, uh, you know, to this day. I mean, I made a commitment to this years and years and years ago to help people and to, to spread the word of the sacred plant and the benefits of it, both as an industrial product and, and as a, a medicinal value. And, you know, it, it's enriched my life and enriched the lives of, of many of my friends. Uh, I've seen people live and go on to have successful lives that were diagnosed with disabilitating illnesses and cannabis was the cure. And, well, let me back up a little. When I first met Linda, she had had cancer. At the age of 23, uh, female cancer where they had to remove a bunch of stuff. Anyway, it gave her problems for the rest of her life. And, uh, when I met her, say we were in our mid forties and she told me, she said, well, the doctor said by the time I'm 40, I'll be in a wheelchair and this and that. Uh, Linda sadly was in a body cast from her ankles to her armpits from the first year of her life till she was about 12 or 13 and didn't even learn how to walk until she was, I think, 14 years old. So she had a, a real long history of health issues. Anyway, uh, she got injured at work after we'd been married, I don't know, three or four years. And it ended up causing her to be permanently disabled. And during that time, she had a lot of trouble taking the pain pills because of her other medical issues from having cancer prior to this. And uh, so I got her to smoke in the cannabis and and it, it just was a miracle for her uh, to be able to be pain-free and to have an appetite and one thing or another. Anyway, I saw the, the medicinal value of cannabis going through this with Linda. And as I told you earlier, I asked that God would help give her the strength to fight and he did. And uh, from that, again, my, my true activism uh, was was in about 93, I guess, 94 when it started. And uh, 
Linda and I raised uh, four or five thousand signatures to get it on the ballot, and you know, like I say, got very very close to Dennis Perone, and from there Dennis moved up to Lake County and put in his farm that was famous worldwide. And I don't know, <laughs> it just kind of grew from there. It all started as wanting to see people happier and healthier. At the journey's height, it was a farm with over 32,000 cannabis plants dedicated to licensed medicinal patients. In between those two points came a bust in 1997, which, in the subsequent court proceedings, saw Eddie Lett become the first California resident acquitted under the medicinal cannabis program Prop 215. As his wife, Linda's health improved, the two activists were connected with the first doctor to write medicinal prescriptions in California, Dr. Todd Mikiuria. Together, they ushered in over 30,000 patients to the legal medical system. In 2000, Eddie Lepp founded the Ministry of Cannabis and Rastafari, which fit his ideals of living life in purity and truth. At the time that this adventure reached its apex, the DEA were on their way to arrest Eddie once again. This time, it would lead to a 10-year prison sentence. I knew that, you know, because I was disabled and on a fixed income, that I'd never be able to afford her medicine, so I put in this garden. I had 132 plants that I was growing for Linda Sentai, and uh, I was arrested. And we went to court uh, over a period of a year and a half. And at the end of the trial, I was the first person arrested, tried and acquitted, completely under the umbrella of 215. And then there was, you know, quite a few people that had settled or come to a conclusion on their cannabis trials prior to mine. But none of them went to trial. They all took deals. So, you know, there were other cases prior to mine. But mine was the first case where I took it to trial and went all the way through and was acquitted by a jury of my peers uh, under Proposition 215 in the state of California. At that point, Linda actually got better and was pretty healthy for the next nine or ten years. And at that time, I was going to trial over the state cases, and there were no doctors doing recommendations to speak of and there was a wonderful gentleman by the name of Todd Mecaria and Dr. Mecaria was the first doctor to write prescriptions for clinical cannabis uh, in the state of California and was a dear friend of mine and uh, during the month and a half I was going to or the year and a half excuse me that I was going to trial over my state case Linda and I at her own expense, we're loading up the car or the van and, and taking two, three, four, five, six people a week down to the Bay Area to get their recommendations. And we had helped, I don't know, three or 400, 500 people get their recommendations over that period of time. And then I won my case. And after I won my case, I started getting asked to speak at places and do various things, yada, yada. And we ended up in the late 90s buying the ranch or the farm or whatever people refer to it as. And during that time, 
everybody kept calling me. I mean, literally hundreds of people from all over the United States uh, and the world, and they would want to know, you know, do you know a lawyer? Do you know a doctor? Do you know this? Do you know that? And as I alluded to earlier, there was no Google it. You know, the Internet was there, but there weren't search engines or things like there are now. And so we uh, ran an ad in the local newspapers up and down the North Coast, and the ad was real simple. It said, medical marijuana, can't find a doctor, I can, call Eddie and my phone number. And because we live in a poor county, I started running the ads three months out before we were going to do this little thing, right? And I had Dr. McCurry on board and, and uh, another doctor, and we started running the ads. Make a long story short, we ended up with something like 1,500 people showed up, and they couldn't do it, the two doctors. And so I talked to them, and Dr. Hopkins, who is in Upper Lake here in Lake County, said that he would keep doing it. And so we told everybody that we couldn't do that first two or three day weekend to come back. And we just got overwhelmed with it. And we realized that, you know, there was nobody helping anybody. And so Linda and I opened our home and for, I don't know, three or four years, we had these uh, meetings or clinics or whatever you want to call them where people would come to our house once or twice a month and we would have the doctors there. And at one time, the state of California came out and said that they believed that there were approximately 100,000 card-carrying medical marijuana patients in the state of California at that time. And at that time, Linda and I were personally responsible for getting somewhere around 30,000 of those prescription or recommendations for people. So we were really, really active at a very early stage. And I've been very active. I mean, Linda had this one little girlfriend and she had, my God, just a, she had like Crohn's disease and MS. And at one point, I think she had cancer on top of it. She had everything in the world wrong with her. And she lived in a little bitty trailer park in Clear Lake and her yard was like eight feet wide and 10 feet long. And their little teeny trailer was probably no more than 30 feet long. So they had absolutely nowhere to, to grow her medicine. And uh, Linda asked me, she says, well, hey, you know, could we put in a few for her? And I said, yeah, sure, why not? And so the first year we put in, I don't know, 10 or 15 plants for a girlfriend. And... Uh, the next year, it ended up we were helping about a half a dozen people. And then the next year, we were helping like 20 or 30. And at that time, I talked to Linda, and we took out a second mortgage on our house and bought the property across the street, which is where the big garden was that I went to prison over because we didn't have enough room on the property and so what we did was we reunited the whole original 40-acre homestead because we knew people would need a place to grow. And so when we got it, we started, you know, telling people, hey, you can grow with us, yada, yada. And 
as this thing happened, it was much like the clinic things I told you about. You know, we expected we'd get 40 or 50 people, and we ended up getting like 13 or 1,400 the first time. And it was the same way with the garden. When we first started, we figured that we'd have maybe 40, 50, 60, 80 people that, you know, would be involved in it. It ended up being almost 2,700 people were involved in it. And, you know, at that time, I believe then and I believe right now, uh, and will believe till the day I die, that everything I did was completely, totally legal, even under federal law, because I was doing it through the church and we should have been protected under the Religious Freedoms Restoration Act. And sadly, the judge decided to deny us a religious defense because she didn't accept the rust of religion, even though there's a Supreme Court case that does accept the rust of religion and our use of cannabis is the holy sacrament. But that's neither here nor there. (laughs) Judges do what judges are going to do. We sent a letter every year for years, uh, and when years, I mean like 10 or 11 years in a row, we sent a letter to the Board of Supervisors, each individual member, the sheriff, the county council, the district attorney, and the last couple of years, we sent letters to the attorney general for the state of California and the governor of the state of California, which at that time was Schwarzenegger. And we notified them of the exact properties, exactly what we were doing, why we were doing it, et cetera, et cetera. And ended all the letters by saying the same thing. If you have any issues with this, if we're breaking the law or doing anything wrong, contact my criminal attorney, my civil attorney, or the church itself. And nobody ever contacted us about any of that. And I know that they all got the letters because I sent them all certified mail. So, you know, when you notify the authorities what you're doing and ask them if you're breaking the law to notify you and nobody answers, you can only accept this fact that you're not breaking the law. And so we went ahead and planned it. And then we found out later that Lake County actually called the DEA and told the DEA, hey, we can't touch this guy. He's not breaking any state laws. Come and get him. And that's what happened. Anybody could join the church. We didn't have any qualifications as far as being a member of the ministry. However, if you were a member of the ministry and you wanted to grow cannabis on church property, whether it was for spiritual purposes or medicinal purposes, you had to have a valid California 215 card, a doctor's recommendation, and it had to stay valid all the way through the course of the season. And that way, we believed that we were legal both under the state laws because no one patient actually had more than about 10 or 12 plants and we were legal under federal law under the religious freedoms uh, restoration act and the religious land use and incarcerated persons act and like i say to this day i still believe that and i believe we were railroaded frankly because of what jack and i were doing as far as getting things legalized uh back in 2008, Jack and I introduced an initiative that we had written 
for the full legalization of cannabis. And to make a long story short, we didn't get enough signatures. Uh, we needed 650,000 signatures to get it on the ballot, and we just got 400,000 and some, so we couldn't get it on the ballot. But they knew from that that in 2010, Jack and I would get it passed and make it legal no problem because we would have the time to get it done. And consequently, they uh, saw to it within three weeks of the elections in November, the judge said, we're going to trial. And after five years of delaying my trial for every excuse in the world you can imagine, she said, no, we're having a trial in December, no matter what. And my doctors wrote letters explaining I needed surgeries and it needed to be delayed and yada, yada. And she said, I don't care, you're going. And so we went to trial and I was convicted. I was uh, indicted on six counts, which in the beginning, I was looking at three or four life sentences, plus an additional 40 years and $17 million in fines. So on the one hand, you could say I got off lucky only getting 10 years because I was supposed to get the four life sentences plus 40 years. But the other side of that is you look at the fact that when it came time to find me and, you know, put the real hurt on me, if you will. The judge refused to find me a penny. She said there was no evidence to justify it. So on the one hand, <laughs> you know, they put me away for 10 years. But on the other hand, the judge said there was nothing to justify finding me. So how guilty was I? 32,524 the first time they came in and then 11,000 the second time. You know, it's something you do and you either have to be dedicated to it or get out of it because there's no in between. It's to this day, it's the largest individual bust in the history of the DEA. They've made larger busts, but they involved cartels and, you know, multiple individuals. And in my case, I was the only one arrested. I've had people ask me about my prison experience and stuff. And, and the truth of the matter is, is, is if going to prison for 10 years was the price I had to pay to have the cannabis movement go from what it was uh, to what it is, then it's a price I'm glad I paid. Throughout Eddie's journey, his past crossed and often merged with celebrities, elite minds, and major players in the cannabis legalization movement. After his release from prison in 2016, he attended many of the cannabis events and festivals as a guest speaker. In this atmosphere, he was frequently meeting high-profile musicians and budding cannabis entrepreneurs like Mike Tyson. Eddie has always kept good company, including Jack Herrer, Brownie Mary, Ed Rosenthal, Pebbles Trippett, and the major force behind California's Prop 215, Dennis Perone. The relationship between Dennis and Eddie was influential to the California legalization movement, which wouldn't have been the same if those two never met. Eddie was humble about his contributions, downplaying his significance, but at the same time, conscious of the advancements being made. I've been told repeatedly by 
different people that, you know, the actions that I took, the things that I did are the foundation of everything that they're doing now. And I realize on the one hand that I certainly did uh, with the help of the late Linda Sentai and, you know, was able to do a whole lot of things that did open a lot of doors for the industry to be where it is now. But it wasn't an individual effort, you know, ever from anybody. My dear friend Dennis Perone, uh, my dear friend Jack Herrera were both very instrumental in this. We have people like Valerie Correll and Lynette Shaw and Pebbles uh, Trippett and the list just goes on and on of the, the old warriors, you know, Dana Beale and Chris Bennett and everybody. And it's just a very warm, rich history of a lot of people that were dedicated to a cause, to a, a belief that, you know, ended up being, I think, a whole lot more than anybody ever thought it would be in the beginning. You can quit and give up and they can win or you can keep fighting and I've just always been one of them guys who keeps fighting. I don't know why exactly, but injustice and wrong just pisses me off. I don't know if I'm stubborn exactly, but I know what's right. I know what's wrong. I suppose you could say I'm a champion for justice. <laughs> you know, I don't like seeing people get screwed at any level for any reason. I remember when Dennis, when he had the place on market in Van Ness, you could go in there any day of the week and there'd be three, four, five news teams from all over the world. And when Dennis moved up to Lake County, he put in a garden and scheduled this huge news conference for all these different people to come to. And on Friday afternoon, the local sheriffs came out, cut down his entire garden and left. And they were all laughing because you know, ha, 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 the little gay guy's going to have his big news conference, ha, 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 and he don't have any plants, ha, ha, ha. Well, I dug up my entire garden, all, I think, 70 plants. <laughs> Took them all over to Dennis's and planted them all. And when the news crews got there, guess what? The little gay guy had his garden. And, you know, Dennis and I, like I say, we were very, very close for many, many years. And uh, you just, you do things because you know in your heart that it's the right thing to do, you know? I mean, Dennis never gave me a penny for doing that. He just did what he did. He just gave me what he was in return for doing that, which was his friendship, his companionship, his kindness, his knowledge, his understanding. And in return, I gave him the same thing back. You know, I mean, many, many years, I went to San Francisco and stayed at Dennis's Castro Cottage for a day, two days, three days, sometimes a week. Dennis never took a penny from me. He wouldn't take a penny from me. And believe me, I tried time after time to give him money. But, you know, when you know you're doing the right thing and the people involved with you know that you're all doing the right thing and you're working together and helping each other, uh, you get things done. You know, it's it's been a long, long, hard battle. And I cannot tell you how many people are, are dead and buried in the ground that are true heroes in this movement that get very little, if any, acknowledgement. Uh, 
my darling uh, wife, the little bitty pretty one, Linda Sentai, has never really got any recognition for all she's done. And she truly was one of the major movers in this, this movement for the first 10 or 15 years of it until she passed away. Uh, you got people like Valerie Carell, who, of course, has gotten quite a bit of attention. But, you know, uh, you got Dana Bale, you got the Aldridges, you got Pebble Strippett. I mean, there's just people everywhere that have worked so hard to try to get this to where it's beginning to go. So, you know. Many, 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 many years ago, Dennis Perron told me that all use was medical, and I told Dennis he was full of shit. However, over the years, I have come to realize that Dennis was completely and totally right. And the thing is this, is anytime you use a substance, whether it's cannabis or pain pills or alcohol or anything else, to alter your perception, then it's medical. You know, I mean... I don't know if you drank or not, but if you go home at the end of the day because you had a long, hard day at work and you have a couple cocktails or a couple beers, why are you having a couple cocktails? Why are you having a couple beers? Because you want to change where you're at, either physically or mentally or both. You want to relax. You want to feel better. You want to take away some of the pain and stress of the day. Sure. That sounds medicinal to me. And like I say, I I agree with Dennis. I think people drink. I think people use drugs. I think people smoke cannabis for medicinal purposes. We were sitting around this front room at the farm up here in Lake County before we went back to the city. And there was this one little gentleman was asking some really frivolous, silly questions and Dennis kind of snapped on him and turned to him and he said, listen, honey, he said, you can teach a monkey how to grow pot if you can teach him how to turn on a water hose. He says, but what Eddie does is rocket science. And, you know, I, I kind of feel like that now, you know, that things have moved on so far in the technological end of it. You know, I kind of feel like the monkey turning on the water hose, but, you know. I've always just had this ability to grow things. I mean, it doesn't matter to me what it is. I have good luck growing. I've been truly blessed in this. You know, I've met not only the famous people in the movement itself, but I've been blessed to meet and know people like, you know, Alex White Flume, one of the very influential chiefs in the Sioux Nation. And, you know, I met so many hip-hop stars and, you know, Bone Stug and Harmony and Real and Red Man and, you know, Cypress Hill and God, Daddy X and Cottonmouth Kings and Willie Nelson and Woody Harrelson and, you know, Bill Moore and the list just goes on and on. Joe Rogan uh, actually was very important. He donated to my legal fund and actually got me out of jail and you know, I've just, like I said, I've been truly blessed. I've, I've ended up meeting some of the most influential politicians in our state and, you know, doctors and lawyers from all around the world. And, 
uh, I went to a party one night and Mike Tyson was there. And, you know, now Mike and I speak when we see each other. You know, I love Mike. Mike is truly a beautiful, beautiful soul. He understood, you know, it appeared to me at least, that he understood the errors of his ways in his youth. And when I was able to uh, spend time with him and everything, he just was a truly warm and charming man. He's a very good sense of humor and very entertaining to spend an evening with. It's truly been a a blessed experience. I mean, there's been heartache, there's been pain. I've lost my wife, my ministry, my homes, everything I ever owned or worked for. But, you know, the rewards that one gets, for me, my rewards aren't monetary or material. My rewards are when I walk into a store and people walk up and say, you're Eddie Lepp, aren't you? Yeah. Well, I've heard about your story and it's an honor to me. <laughs> These are the things that happen to me that allow me to realize that doing the right thing was not only the right thing for the people I did it for, but it was the right thing for me. And like I said, I've been truly blessed to have so many wonderful, wonderful people come into my life at every level. And it's just been a very interesting journey. Religion is a subject Eddie had pondered over since he was a child, eventually becoming a practicing Rastafarian and minister of the Rastafarian faith. This was not some scheme to grow cannabis under the guise of religious freedom. It was a genuine destination on a road of exploration and discovery. Faith was an integral component that delivered him from depression and hard drug use after he returned from the Vietnam War. In 2002, Eddie founded the multi-denominational ministry of cannabis and Rastafari. Recognized at the Supreme Court level as a religion which enjoys certain protections under the law, this was not allowed into the trial for the 2004 arrest or considered during sentencing. In 2017, after his release, Eddie, along with his wife, Heidi Grossman, founded a new church, the Sugarleaf Church of Rastafarian and Cannabis Love. Well, while I was going through all of this, I also was on a spiritual journey. I've been raised in the churches. I had been exposed to the Christian church and several different Christian beliefs. I'd been exposed to the Jewish faith, and I'd been exposed to the Catholic faith, you know, to a to a point where I actually kind of understood them all a little bit, you know what I mean? And my family, before my parents divorced, was, were very involved in the Mormon church, and we did, you know, a lot of the Boy Scouts and the, the Cub Scouts and all of those other things that, you know, you get involved in, and I always had a pretty close relationship with the creator as I understood him, but there were some incidents happened in my life that truly made me question religion, if you will. So as I was going through these things with my dad, I started questioning, you know, my need to be drunk all the time and be high all the time. And that's when I started to to begin the process of getting sober and As I went through that process, I found myself more aware spiritually. And 
eventually, as I say, I made the promise that I told you about, and I just reflected that, you know, among the happiest times of my life had been when I'd been involved in a relationship with the Creator. So I went on this quest, if you will, and, and started thinking about all these different churches, and I realized that none of them appealed to me. And so I just started living my life in a certain way. And several years passed, and I met a young gentleman by the name of Shiloh, and we were sitting one day talking, and I explained to him my basically philosophy of life and, and kind of basically told him the little story I just told you. And he said, Papa, he says, you were Rasta, man. And I says, what's Rasta? And he told me a little bit about it. And back at that time, of course, the, the Internet was in its infancy, and it was nothing like it is now. You couldn't just Google it, you know what I mean? So I actually ended up uh, having, I don't know, 10 or 15, 20, 25 discussions with a Rasta minister in Jamaica that a mutual friend of ours uh, set me up with. And I remember one day towards the end of our conversations uh, that covered, I don't know, probably a six or seven month period, I asked him, I said, you know, what do I have to do to become a Rasta minister? I said, I'm already a minister to the Universal Life Church, but I want to be a Rasta minister. And he laughed, this this beautiful James Earl Jones laugh, you know, this deep, beautiful laugh. And I said, what's funny? And he says, child, he says, you are a Rasta minister. And... I realized at that time that I'm pretty sure I was born Rasta, you know, because the philosophy of respecting the mother and respecting yourself and taking care of your body and, and being kind to others, uh, you know, uh, some of the first lessons you learn uh, as a Rasta are the history of the religion and you know, Brethren Howell and the others in Jamaica that first started this were beat and burned out and prosecuted and tortured and everything in the world you can imagine that happens to any religion that, that's persecuted uh, happened to them. And their philosophy was regardless of what happens to us, we must stand together, stick together. And Brethren Howell had a, about approximately four or 500 acres there in Jamaica. And he brought all of the Rasta brethren to the, the communal situation. They grew together. They lived together. They grew their food and everything else together. And these are some of the basic lessons that as a Rasta man, you learn and, and understand that, you know, it's your sacred duty to spread the word, uh, not only of God and his teachings, but of the sacred plant. And it's just a wonderful tool to enhance your relationship with the creator as you understand it, because it allows you a, a conduit or a pathway that seems to be much clearer than any other avenue I've tried. So for me, it's been a wonderful journey. In the Rasta religion, we have what they refer to as bengis, which are spiritual or, or religious type celebrations. And in these, you'll find that 
there's the drum circles, there's, of course, prayer, there's food, there's music, you know, all of the things you would find at most social gatherings. But for the most part, to a roster, what's the most important part of these functions is where you sit down and communicate with each other. And you pass the Holy Sacrament around and uh, communion, and then you sit down and you discuss issues. You know, the the plight of the black man, uh, both in Jamaica and around the world, uh, the plight of the white man, the plight of the human <laughs> in general, you know, and various things like, you know, do, what are we going to do about the water here? Or what are we going to do about this or that? And that is critical for a Rasta man is to, to be able to talk and be able to communicate and, you know, look for solutions to problems that need to be solved. And I think that, you know, if more people worried about solving the problems that we have, as opposed to worried about how they can solve the problems that we have while they get rich doing it, that the world would probably be a lot better place. I think people would be a lot happier on the whole. But, you know, I mean, I, I'm not against capitalism at all. I, I really not. But at the same time, I, I think that there comes a point where, you know, you have a certain amount of money that why do you need more? You know what I mean? And... I think the greed part of it needs to be toned down a little bit and a little more fairly distributed profit would probably be better for everybody involved. But, you know, it's hard to speculate as to what exactly will happen in all of this. You know, I've had people say, well, gee, Eddie, you don't have dreads. And I reflect back to a statement one of my Jamaican friends told me many, many years ago. He said, Eddie, it's not the length of the dread on the head. It's the depth of the root in the heart. And that is what's important. It's, you know, how you treat people, how you, what is your belief system? Are you a good man? You know, in the, the Rasta religion, we have what we call wolves, which are people with dreads that come across like they, you know, are Rasta, and really they're not. They're just there to use you and abuse you, and, you know, uh, it's just not something that, that a Rasta man would do. We love people, we love life, we love the earth, and very nonviolent, very peaceful, and very loving as a group. The stoner stereotype has always rubbed Eddie the wrong way. He had witnessed the medicinal benefits through the various people that were in his life. Having met the people he had, Eddie knew that people in all walks of life consume cannabis and for a variety of reasons. He understood the plant on a personal connection level. Conversely, Eddie also understood the commercial potential of hemp-derived products. As the years progressed, influential people within the legalization movement, people he considered close friends, began to pass away. As they slowly succumbed to illness over the years, Eddie ensured them that he would continue to carry the torch forward. The cannabis genetics that Eddie had grown and shared over the years represented a large portion of the lineage that make up many of today's top cultivars. Recognized for his many contributions, in 2017, 
OG Eddie Lepp received the Lifetime Achievement Award from High Times Magazine. What I really am hoping to accomplish before I die is to have people look at us as what we really are, uh, not what they perceive us to be. I know for years I've heard this bullshit, you know, well, it's just a bunch of old hippies that want to smoke dope and, you know, a thousand other things. And it, I just, I would hope that as a whole, we could get society to look at us and realize that we're just common everyday people like them with families that we love, pets that we care about, you know, bills to pay. We're no different than anybody else in that way. And the fact that we choose to use a, a very non-malignant plant to enrich our lives in numerous ways doesn't make us crazy or stupid or lazy or anything else. And I think ultimately that is the supreme goal is to get people to realize that and this plant truly is one of the greatest gifts a creator ever gave to his children. You know, I'm, I pray that one day that they'll open the doors for full medical studies. And I'm sure that when that happens, the benefits will just blow everybody away. I think the, probably one of the best examples actually is looking at cannabis as an industrial product from the hemp point of view. The most used substance in the world right now is sea kelp. Sea kelp is in everything from toothpaste to shoe polish. It's in about 1,500 different products that we use every day. And the scientists and the people that do these studies and stuff have said that if they had the same freedom to experiment with industrial hemp that they have to experiment with sea kelp, that industrial hemp would be in over 5,000 products within probably two to five years and would be in tens of thousands of products over the next generation. And from the medical end, I think it's you know going to end up being the same thing. They, they know right now that it helps cancer, it helps Alzheimer's, and quite a few other things. And I think once the experiments are done and the tests run and the studies completed, they're, they're going to find out that there's literally hundreds of illnesses and ailments that this plant will improve or cure completely. I promised Dennis Perone Linda Sentai and Jack Herrera, all the same thing, virtually on their deathbeds. And that was that I would not give up until this plant was completely legal and we were treated like normal human beings. And as I alluded to earlier, that is my goal, to get people to quit treating us like we're a bunch of stoners and that all we care about is patchouli oil and smoking pot. I've, like I say, I've been blessed not only to meet wonderful people, but, you know, to do things. I mean, in, in my big garden that I was raided in, I had every cannabis cup winner in the last 20 years in that garden. I brought the first isolator bags home from Amsterdam and was making ice hash before anybody else in this country even knew what an isolator bag was. So, you know, I've been truly blessed to see a lot of things and do a lot of things you know it's just amazing the 
way it's progressed to see what, you know, has developed and see how things are working now, like the vape pens and stuff. I mean, you know, there's some truly marvelous innovations that really make it accessible to the masses. Two of my favorite strains uh, to grow are Sensi Star by Paradise Seeds by Luke. And the other one is Super Silver Haze by Greenhouse and Ariane and his crew. Uh, one of my very favorites to smoke is the cheese by Big Buddha Cheese uh, out of the UK. And then, of course, I've got, I don't know, like I say, probably 15, 20, 30 strains of my own that uh, are all excellent that I really enjoy and get a lot of fulfillment out of. So, you know, it's hard to single out just one anymore. There's so many now and, you know, they've taken this to a whole new level where they're pulling the turpentines out and this and that. And, you know, they, they've taken it to a level that, you know, it's hard to imagine when, you know, I started off doing this like a dirt farmer. You know what I mean? I, I had a background in gardening my whole life and farming. And, you know, that's how I approached it. And now these kids out here, they're doing everything strictly from a scientific aspect. And, you know, they, they're kind of leaving me in the dust on a lot of this stuff. But uh, High Times once referred to me as probably the greatest grower in the world. And I'm sure I could probably still grow as well as I ever did. You know, I don't need to know all the scientific terminology for what I'm doing. I just give me some dirt and some water and I'll take care of the rest of it. There's a whole bunch of genetics that have stood out over the years. You know, uh, right now, I don't know. I, there was a young man over here yesterday. Uh, we had a little 4th of July barbecue and we were talking about that very thing. And, uh, he was talking about all the different strains that are out now and this and that. You know, I brought tons of genetics back from Europe and I have tons of genetics of my own from back in the 60s and 70s and 80s. And we were talking about, you know, this and that. And he started laughing and he says, he says, you're so silly. And I says, what do you mean I'm so silly? He says, God, Eddie, he says, 90% of the strains being sold right now are your genetics. They came out of my gardens over the years. And, you know, when I look at it, I realize, you know, he's, he's right. Most of these strains did come out of my garden. So, you know, I, I've always been very proud of the fact that we were able to do so much for so many. Back in the old days, when everybody rolled up joints, they rolled for the most part what we called pinners, which were small joints. And that was largely due to the cost. And then my dad, when he got sick, he uh, got a tracheometry tube put in. And they had these papers back then. I don't even remember what name or what brand they were, but they were the large papers as compared to, you know, the standard like zigzag rolling papers. They were like an inch longer and probably a third again wider. And I rolled it up and put a full gram of cannabis into it. And so we started calling them fatties. And that's, as far as I know, that's where the original fatties came from, was me rolling from my dad back in the 80s. 
Anyway, I rolled them so they would fit his trach tube, and he would put his joints right into his tracheometry tube and smoke it right through the tube. And that's how I started rolling the fatties. And that's one of my favorite memories is seeing my dad sitting in his hot tub with a big old fat joint sticking out the middle of his neck. (laughs) I don't do a whole lot in the cannabis industry anymore. You know, nice to be recognized for a lifetime of hard work. And as I said earlier, you know, if the sacrifices I've made, if the things I've lost, as responsible as I've been told for where we are now, then it was worth it. I mean, I did what I did uh, to change the world. I don't mean to say that I woke up one morning and said, hey, I'm going to change the world. What I mean is, is I woke up one morning and said, hey, I need to start doing the right thing and start helping people, yada, yada, yada. And through the course of my actions and what I was doing, I did end up changing the world. And I'd like to say each journey begins with the first step. And when you take that first step, you're really not conscious that there's 450 million steps left in the journey. You just took the first one. You just keep walking. And, you know, now, all these years later, I can look back and say, my God, what a long and winding road. But I didn't know that when I started. I didn't know when when this all started that I was going to end up being famous all over the world. I didn't know that I was going to end up going to prison or end up meeting all the wonderful people I've met or, you know, any of these things were going to happen. I just was doing it to help people. And, you know, like I said, if everybody had that philosophy of, you know, let's make the world a better place instead of let's make the world a better place, how much can I make doing it? I think we'd all be a lot better off and a lot happier. Eddie Lett passed away August 16th, 2021, almost a year after his October 2020 cancer diagnosis. In 2020, Eddie had started his own YouTube page, which remains up to this day. The shows featured him talking with friends, but they also gave us a closer look into the passion and the life of a man who created so much opportunity for us all. Dope History was fortunate to have the opportunity to record this interview a year before his passing. Eddie Lepp was gracious with his time. He was an open book and allowed us all to share important personal moments of his journey. OG Eddie Lepp played a significant role directly or indirectly in many cannabis consumers' lives. He will always be remembered as a cannabis legend. And I think if there was one thing he would have liked me to say here, it would have been to keep the message alive.